Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with... Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, reports from Zambia say Zambian President Michael Sata has died. UN launches probe into violent clashes in South Sudan, and Boko Haram victims detailed their abuse in a new report. In economics, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe warns foreign firms, and in sports news, Yaya Toure makes 2014 FIFA Ballon d'Or shortlist. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Zambian President Michael Sutter has reportedly died at the age of 77. According to private media reports, Sutter died last night in London where he was receiving treatment for an undisclosed illness. Reports on the private Muzi television station and the Zambia Reports and Zambian Watchdog websites say the Southern African nation's cabinet was about to meet. Government officials have given no immediate comment. Trade unions in Burkina Faso have called for a general strike today following a day of protests against long-serving President Blaise Compaoré that saw hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. Demonstrators fought with police in Burkina Faso's capital, Ouagadougou, yesterday after a massive rally against plans to extend the rule of the veteran president. The opposition has also called for a blockade of parliament tomorrow when the legislature examines a proposed constitutional amendment that will would allow Kampure to seek another another term next year. South Africa's president, Sir, deputy president rather, Cyril Ramaphosa, has told the country's main opposition, the Democratic Alliance's George Michalakis, that they will not violate the laws of other countries, including Nigeria. Ramaphosa was giving an oral reply in Parliament after Michalakis criticised government for the delay in repatriating the bodies of the South African victims of the Nigerian church building collapse almost seven weeks ago. The South African government is involved in the process of making sure that the mortal remains of those who perished in Nigeria are returned home. Now, I think we need to be respectful of the laws and the processes and customs of all countries around the world. And South Africa is not one of those countries that is going to violate the rules, the laws of other countries. 
and in this case, Nigeria. Meanwhile, a pathologist has ruled out an explosion as the cause of a fatal building collapse at the Church of Nigerian preacher T.B. Joshua. The pathologist says none of the victims had blast injuries. T.B. Joshua has claimed that sabotage possibly from a low-flying aircraft was to blame for the building collapse at the synagogue church of all nations. The inquest heard that 116 people died in total, 84 of them South Africans, on the September 12th tragedy. The pathologist's evidence comes after a Lagos State firefighter told the hearing last Friday that there were no evidence of an explosion at the site. And finally, the World Health Organization says it's too early to tell if restrictions on health workers will deter medical staff from traveling to West Africa to help fight the Ebola crisis. New Jersey is one of three states in the U.S. that has introduced a 21-day quarantine for health workers who have had contact with Ebola patients. The ruling comes after a nurse was put in isolation in a tent in New Jersey, a decision that has caused outrage amongst politicians and health workers. Australia has also been criticized for a ban on visas for West Africa. The World Health Organization does not recommend mandatory quarantine. WHO spokesperson Tariq Jasafaric. It's really important to balance any measure between what's perceived as a protecting population and the risk of stigmatization. We desperately need international health workers and we keep calling for health workers. They are really the key to this response. And these people should not be treated when coming home in a way that they would be stigmatized. And that's the news. Helans at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it is exactly 8.06 Central African time on this Wednesday. October the 29th, the 302nd day of 2014, with 63 days left in the year. A top story, reports from Zambia say Zambian President Michael Sata has died in London, where he had been receiving treatment for an undisclosed illness. 77-year-old Sata left Zambia for medical treatment abroad on October the 19th accompanied by his wife and family members, according to a brief government statement that gave no further details. Concern over Sata's health has been mounting since June, when he disappeared from the public eye without explanation and was then reported to be getting medical treatment in Israel. To find out more on this, we spoke to our correspondent in Zambia, Hilda Akekelwa. Now, Hilda Waking up to such sad news um, here on hearing that uh, President Sata has died. What are you hearing and has the government confirmed the news? No, not yet. The government has not uh, issued any statement over the matter. But uh, Movie TV, which is a private uh, uh, television station, broke the news. Though not in detail, but promised to... Uh, to give updates as the day goes by. Now, where did the, the news really come from? Has any family member come out to confirm the news um, that are that is being reported uh, globally as we speak? 
Not really. I don't think any family member has come out in the open, but people have uh, have gotten the news from uh, online media. How long has President Sata been sick? Well, he's. Uh, you remember that when he came into office, he was uh, very healthy-looking, active despite his age. But over the past one year, he was looking slightly frail. Um, and, of course, the nation was asking if uh, it could be told whether the president was okay. But um, much was not being revealed. And that uh, brought speculations and speculations over his health. Uh, there were times when actually the online media was on about uh, him being dead. But, uh, well, he lived up to last night. Now, Hilda, do we know what kind of illness has been troubling President Sata? No, because the nation was never told uh, what was, uh, what was uh, troubling him. Although some speculations were saying he had cancer, he had this, uh, he had liver problems, we are not really sure what killed him. Hilda, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm sure once uh, the news has been confirmed by the Zambian government, we will be able to get more details. Yes, thank you. That was our correspondent in Zambia, Hilda Akekula, joining us on the line from Livingston. An investigation is underway to determine what sparked clashes at a site where displaced people are being protected by the UN mission in South Sudan, UNMIS. The mission says that up to 60 people were injured in the clashes which broke out on Sunday between two groups of people at the site sheltering up to 24,000 people in Jebel. Tear gas and warning shots were fired in an attempt to separate the groups and two Nepalese peace workers were injured in the fracas. UN Radio Swaro Charles Elisha asked UNMIS spokesperson Joseph Contreras about the incident. There were clashes that broke out on Sunday morning between different groups of internally displaced persons living at a protection of civilians location adjacent to the UN House property. The fighting was not between internally displaced persons who we are protecting on the one hand and our own personnel. Our role was strictly limited to calming down the situation and separating the two groups of internally displaced persons who were fighting each other. Have you been able to establish as to what caused the fighting between the two internally displaced persons groups? No. Investigations are underway into what exactly triggered the fighting. It may have been a domestic dispute, but we have yet to establish exactly what triggered this fighting, which lasted for a good part of Sunday. We learned that there were some injuries. How many people were injured? Over 60 internally displaced persons were injured in the fighting. 20 of them had to be hospitalized and four, as of this morning, were in a serious condition. Also, two Nepalese UN police officers suffered minor injuries in the melee.
Now, these injuries, when they were trying to separate the groups, or exactly how they suffer the injuries? Yes, that's my understanding. In the course of the day, our police personnel, who are specially trained in crowd management, went into the area of the protection civilian site where the fighting was taking place and seemed to have sustained injuries as they were trying to separate the two groups and calm down the fighting. Also, I believe the tear gas was fired at one point to disperse the crowds to calm down such matters in the protection civilian site. I understand there was a kind of prison set in the protection of the civilian side to discipline cases like that. Is it still working out? How are you trying to manage these issues? Well, at a number of protection civilian sites, we have established holding facilities where we place people suspected of serious crimes for brief periods. We're not in a position to hand over internally displaced persons suspected of serious criminal behavior. And my understanding is that two people who were suspected of instigating the fighting yesterday have been held and are currently being detained. But when we do that, these people are not held for very long because we don't have the authority to prosecute or jail people. So we'll hold on to these people and approach the authorities about possibly handing them over to them. Otherwise, they'll probably be returned to the population at that protection of civilian side and given a stern warning not to engage in more violent activity. Are the elders, like the chiefs, that are also there in the IDPs, are they trying to help the UN in settling matters like fighting or any disputes like that? Or exactly how are they helping the UN police? Well, yes, we frequently turn to the leadership of the community of internally displaced persons at these protection of civilian sites. When trouble occurs, we speak to them about what they think is the best way to handle the troublemakers and what informal sanctions they may wish to apply against these individuals suspected of criminal behavior. So we have an ongoing relationship with people who have been identified as leaders of these IDP communities at the various protection civilian sites where we are sheltering people. Now, if there are extreme cases, those who are known for fighting, even to the extent of killing, what do you then do? Because you said you people don't hand over to the government. Well, it does put us in a bit of a quandary. In, I think, maybe one or two cases, we have found ourselves obligated to expel the individual from our protection of civilian sites, and we put up photos at the entrances to some of our compounds telling our security staff not to permit entry to these individuals. In most instances, however, if we feel that it's not appropriate to hand over people suspected of serious criminal behavior or the authorities do not want to take custody of them. We detain them for a few days and then hand them back over to the community and ask the community leaders to handle the individuals in the best way they think is suitable. That was Joseph Contreras, spokesperson for the UN mission in South Sudan, talking to UN Radio's Swaro Charles Elisha. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa.
Nigerian women and girls abducted by the militant group Boko Haram suffer a range of abuses at the hands of their captors, including rape, physical and psychological abuse, forced religious conversion and marriage. According to a new Human Rights Watch report, girls and women abducted by the Nigerian Islamist group Boko Haram have described life in captivity, which includes forced marriage and labor, rape, torture, psychological abuse, and coerced religious conversion. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Human Rights Watch Nigeria researcher Mausi Segan. The girls tell me that when the insurgents came to the school, there was no adult. The single civilian security man in that compound fled as soon as they heard the gunshots from the town, leaving the girls all alone. There were teachers' quarters in that school, principals' quarters in that school. None of the adults slept in the school with those girls. They were left alone. And so it really, at the end of it, is a failure of the authorities to protect because that is a state-owned secondary school. I don't know that um, the international community could have stopped this if the Nigerian government themselves do not take their responsibilities as seriously as they should in protecting vulnerable communities or at least not keeping the girls or students alone in that large number, alone in the middle of nowhere with no electricity, there was no power at all in that school. And yeah, they were really just sitting ducks waiting for this to happen. And that, I think, is what has continued to happen. The group has continued to take more and more women and girls. Of course, they're also abducting young men, forcefully recruiting them and killing those who refuse recruitment. They do it because they simply can. No one is stopping them. Also, concern has been expressed about the lack of security force presence in areas which are particularly vulnerable to attack. And at the same time, you know, you hear these reports of government forces fleeing from the Boko Haram militants. Now, what are we to make of this? Those are the experiences that the residents of those areas have related to human rights. But as well as to several media outlets, journalists going into those areas tell the same stories. One resident of the Chibok school, whose children, two daughters happened to have been taken as well, she told me how they were fleeing the town. And running along with them, he was shocked to see that soldiers fully clothed in their military gear were running along with them. He said, in his own words, he said, we hid in the bush together until morning when the insurgents had left, only to return to find that our daughters had also been raided and our children had been taken away. I think that the Nigerian military probably is overstretched, but what the information we have is also that they are under-equipped. And without the right kind of equipment to face Boko Haram headlong, I think that um, what the individual soldiers did for themselves was just to save their own lives and leave the people to their fate. And uh, again, that to the failure of the government to properly equip its security forces to provide the protection for the people. The Nigerian government says they have a ceasefire agreement with Boko Haram militants, and yet Boko Haram continues to terrorize civilians, executing them and abducting them. Now, what does this say for the agreement and the promise that the 200 Chibok girls kidnapped in April will be returned? I think that what we can be clear about is that an agreement that takes two parties A unilateral announcement, to my mind, does not suffice to guarantee that that is the truth. It does appear that the government is discussing with a group who they are and how influential they are to extend that to the rest of the different cells of Boko Haram. It's difficult 
to understand, but it does seem that the agreement if there is any is being breached not only by Boko Haram because in the past week we've also heard about Nigerian security forces killing suspected members of Boko Haram during attacks. And so it certainly does not appear that there is a truth to stop hostilities or firefights in place at all. Probably, but we understand that there is dialogue continuing. Hopefully that will yield to something in the near future. You have said yourself, Mausi, that Boko Haram forcibly conscripts young men and boys to fight for them. But there are similarly other reports that the boys are willing because working with the militants gets them out of the cycle of poverty. Is this true? I think that both scenarios are, are true. There are those who, for um, all kinds of reasons, financial inducement, were willing to join Boko Haram. But in, in, in many cases, including those that we have heard from witnesses to some of these attacks where young men and, and even older men are taken by Boko Haram. It is unwilling, it is involuntary, they are being forced to join the group. Indeed, earlier, I think about the middle of this month, when an attack took place in Konduga, once the Boko Haram fighters began to retreat, some young men actually surrendered to the Nigerian military. We understand that these were the forcefully recruited young men who were made to fight alongside the group. It wasn't their choice, and they willingly surrendered to the authorities. So the forceful recruitment is going on, but yeah, there are all those other, or some criminal elements who want to get in on the action and see it as something glamorous who are joining Boko Haram voluntarily and also for financial considerations. Now, a wave of attacks by female suicide bombers earlier this year, I think almost immediately after the Chibok girls were kidnapped, prompted speculation that Boko Haram may have been using abducted women and young girls to carry out attacks. Would this be a possibility? Anything is possible. Like I said, um, from the tale that one of the victims from the earlier abduction told us, she was forced to participate in some of the military operations. It will definitely not be beyond Boko Haram to have indoctrinated some of the young women. They might be and they might not be from the Chibok school. But if you understand the position of women within that society in that region of Nigeria, you would understand that um, women virtually have very little control over their own actions or their own choices in life. So this might not even be those in captivity. It could be women who are affiliated with Boko Haram either by marriage or any other kind of relationship who have been indoctrinated to believe that this is the right thing to do. And because this is an ideological insurgency, ideologically driven insurgency. And so it's easy to, to put those ideas in the minds of women and encourage them to carry out these attacks on their own as well. That was Human Rights Watch Nigeria researcher Mausi Sagan talking to Joseho Dingake. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The South African government has to abide by Nigerian rules as it awaits the release of the bodies of 84 apparent South Africans who died in the church building collapse in Lagos. 
This is according to Deputy President Sul Ramaphosa answering questions in the National Council of Provinces. Ramaphosa said government was doing everything possible to ensure the bodies were repatriated. But before this could be done, all processes, including the identification of bodies, would first need to be completed by Nigerian authorities. Luanda Maume compiled the following report. In his opening remarks, the deputy president dealt with the question regarding the repatriation of mortal remains of those who perished in Nigeria when a guest house at the synagogue church of all nations collapsed. Many of our people indeed await the return of the mortal remains of the South Africans who perished in that accident. The discussions have largely focused on fast-tracking the return of those injured and the national, uh, and nationals for repatriation. The South African government is not playing any role in the investigations that are currently going on because this matter falls within the Nigerian legal jurisdiction. A coroner has been appointed to investigate the accident and the inquest, we are told, commenced on the 24th of October 2014. The South African government has, however, indicated its readiness and willingness to assist with the investigation and can only partake in such investigation if it is invited to do so by the relevant Nigerian authorities. This didn't seem to go down well with opposition MP Velem Faba from the Democratic Alliance who questioned the relations between Nigeria and South Africa as well as the country's influence in the continent at large. I would like to know if this delay does not perhaps indicate the South African government's complete lack of influence and goodwill on the African continent. To which Ramaphosa responded. The South African government continues to enjoy good relations with uh, various countries and indeed many countries, if not all countries on the African continent. We execute our relationships on the basis of uh, mutual beneficial Uh, advancement of our interests and in doing so we are acutely aware that we should respect other countries we should treat them as well as we want to be treated we should be courteous and cordial to them and this we do hoping and knowing that we will be able to continue enjoying good relations in everything The South African government is involved in the process of making sure that the mortal remains of those who perished in Nigeria are returned home. And every effort is being made to make sure that they are brought back. Now, I think we need to be respectful of the laws and the processes and customs of all countries around the world. The South African government would not be able just to parachute itself into Nigeria and extricate those, the mortal remains of those who perished. And so therefore we are hoping, as I indicated, that this will be resolved as soon as possible. We are following up every activity that is involved in all this, and we are certain that it will be concluded soon. 
The deputy president also took the opportunity to convey the government's condolences following the passing of uh, goalkeeper Senzo Meiwa, who was tragically killed on Sunday night. We also pass our condolences to the family of Senzo Meiwa and indeed to the fans and his club as well. Everybody in our country is saddened by his untimely death. This is a death that should not have happened and we are deeply, deeply sorry and we are robbed of a great talent that could have made our nation proud over the next few years. South Africa's Deputy President Sul Ramaphosa ending that report by Luanda Maume. Amnesty International yesterday released a report documenting what it describes as extensive repression of a- actual or suspected dissent in Ethiopia's Oramia region. The Global Human Rights Organization claims that dozens of suspected dissenters have been killed, with the majority of them accused of supporting the rebel Oromo Liberation Front. James Shimanyula reports. The 164-page report, which highlights large-scale repression in Ethiopia's Oromo region, was released on Tuesday in the Kenyan capital Nairobi. Claire Beston Amnesty International's researchers said they had interviewed scores of victims to come up with the report. The report documents how thousands of people in the Oromia region of Ethiopia have been arrested. These are ordinary people from all walks of life, including farmers, students, midwives, even government employees. We interviewed over 240 people for this report. We know of over 5,000 cases of people being arrested or suspected opposition to the government and also used brutal tactics to control signs of political disobedience, including detention without charge, torture, enforced disappearance and unlawful killings. Claire Beston criticised Ethiopian authorities for not, as she put it, tolerating voices of opposition, particularly in areas inhabited by Oromo, home to Ethiopia's largest ethnic group. Well, the Ethiopian government is hostile to all forms of dissent, and the government shows signs of anticipating a very high level of opposition. So thousands of people are arrested to control these signs of political disobedience. Um, there is an armed rebel group in the region, and many people are arrested on the accusation that they support this group. The group that Claire Beston is referring to is the Oromo Liberation Front, known by its acronym OLF. OLF was a junior member in a transitional government in Ethiopia dominated by the then Northern rebels who toppled the Marxist dictator Mengistu Hele Mariam in 1991. However, OLF quit the government in 1992. Amnesty International's regional director Muthoni Wanyeki explained why the Oromo are falling foul of the Ethiopian government. The Oromo, because they're such a large majority, because they were originally part of the coalition that brought this government to power, because they then left the coalition and have an armed group and declared a terrorist organization, that seems to lie behind the, the repression of ordinary citizens from all walks of life across the region. Daoud Ipsa, not his real name, who hails from Oromo land, narrated to Amnesty International how the Ethiopian security agent use torture on suspected or more rebel fighters. They tied together 
and your heads down on the ground and they pour the water and your mouth is closed and when you suppose they ask you a question and they want to say something you should say that you show your finger and when i when you show your finger we open the pour the water and then we ask you then i show my that was daud ipsa not his real name a victim of alleged torture by the Ethiopian government. The Ethiopian government is yet to respond to Amnesty International's report. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyola. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. The Zambian government has not yet confirmed media reports that the country's president, Michael Sata, has passed away. Trade unions in Burkina Faso calls a general strike today following a day of protests against long-serving President Blaise Compaoré that saw hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. And the World Health Organization says it's too early to tell if restrictions on health workers will deter medical staff from traveling to West Africa to help fight the Ebola crisis. Those are the stories making headlines. And the United Nations is warning countries against discriminating against health workers who have returned from the Ebola-affected countries in West Africa. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says that these workers should be treated with respect since their service is a noble one. The UN chief held consultative meetings with the African Union on the Ebola challenge at the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Coletta Wanjohi reports. The Ebola virus disease hit the West African countries in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone in March this year. Since then, the number of people who have succumbed to the disease nears 5,000 and there are up to 10,000 suspected cases. Mali has so far registered one case of a two-year-old girl who died. Health workers from different parts of Africa and the world over have either been deployed to the Ebola-affected countries by their own states or volunteered to assist to fight the scourge. However, now there are reports that some countries are forcing such health workers to be quarantined when they return home. The United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says that this is wrong and should stop. All this quarantine, which are not based on scientific uh, evidence, and this will only hamper and obstruct, obstruct, and will also undermine the such a very strong commitment by many health workers who are willing to uh, uh, visit and help the people on the ground. Ban Ki-moon made this comment at the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. He had consultations with the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Nkosezana Dlamini Zuma, over the progress made so far to curb the Ebola virus disease. The challenge still remains the number of health workers needed to assist the affected countries. Currently, African Union says that 2,000 health workers are on the ground, but the United Nations says that 5,000 are needed as soon as possible. The World Bank Group President Jim Yong Kim, who was part of the meeting on Ebola, says the World Bank Group will make sure that the funds needed to support health workers in West Africa are available. 
However, he says what is needed now is for these medical professionals to heed to their ethical call. And I think that uh, I, I would specifically put out a call to all medical professionals throughout the world. And I would say to them that think back to the day when you received your degree. And when you received your degree, you took an oath. And that oath was uh, that you are now a physician, a nurse, uh, whatever it is that you became. And that oath was that when people were ill, you would step up and you would provide treatment to those people. Right now, uh, there, are, there are people running from this epidemic, and uh, we've really got to step beyond that. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Lamini Kosazana Zuma, has just returned from the Ebola-affected states of West Africa. She says that the situation on the ground will become more dire if African governments do not heed and contribute medical personnel and other financial contributions as soon as possible. But we also learned that yes, you can prevent, Ebola can be prevented. And secondly, that all of us can contribute to the fight against Ebola. And thirdly, that you can recover from Ebola, even if you get an infection. Because somehow out there, there is the impression that it's such a huge problem, nothing, nothing can be done to to stop it, and that once you've got it, you will die. It's not the case. The African Union is planning to mobilize the private sector to contribute towards the fight against Ebola. It is planning to engage the Africa business community, the Confederation of African Football, and the cultural sector in the continent to harness the much-needed support for the West African countries of Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Koleto Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Australia came under fire on Tuesday from health experts and rights advocates after it issued a blanket ban on visas from West African nations affected by the Ebola outbreak, making it the first rich nation to shut its doors to the region. Australia has not recorded a case of Ebola despite a number of scares and Conservative Prime Minister Tony Abbott has so far resisted repeated requests to send medical personnel to help battle the outbreak on the ground. Now, our question to you this morning is, do you think this is the right way of dealing with the situation? Email us your views and thoughts on this issue to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Do you think this is the right way of dealing with the situation? You can also get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. For the 23rd year in a row, the UN General Assembly has overwhelmingly voted in favor of a resolution calling for an end to the decade-long 
economic embargo against Cuba. In an annual show of solidarity against the 54-year-old embargo, 190 member states voted to end the embargo, a remarkable display of consensus that has again left the United States largely isolated on the issue. Only two countries voted against the resolution with three abstentions. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Draft resolution A-69-04 is adopted. 188 countries in favor of lifting the embargo, with Israel and the U.S. voting no, while the Pacific nations of Palau, Micronesia and Marshall Islands abstaining. Cuba's Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez told the Assembly the decision to lift the blockade would be welcomed at a global level. We invite the government of the United States to establish a mutually respectful relationship based on reciprocity, based on sovereign equality and the principles of international law and the UN Charter. We can try to find a solution to our differences through a respectful dialogue and cooperation in areas of common interest. We can live and deal with each other in a civilized way, despite our differences. He said the accumulated economic damages over the 54 years of the embargo were astronomical. The accumulated economic damages, which are huge for a small economy like ours, amount to one trillion one hundred and twelve billion five hundred and thirty-four thousand dollars, estimated on the basis of the price of gold, which is being manipulated by those who created the nefarious monetary systems currently in force which is already being harmed by the impact of an insurmountable crisis which affects the poorest countries. There was broad support, with South Africa's Ambassador Kingsley Mamabolo joining several countries in calling the embargo a violation of international law. The blockade against Cuba must end now, lest history does not forgive us for failing the Cuban people. All countries deserve to enjoy the fruits of globalization so as to make it meaningful and tangible to their people. The United States' unilateral action is counter to the latter and the spirit of international law, including of the United Nations Charter. But the overwhelming tide of support did nothing to move the U.S. position. Representative Ambassador Ronald Goddard rebuked Cuba for portioning blame for the island's economic woes away from its own policy failures. The Cuban economy will not thrive until the Cuban government permits a free and fair labor market, fully empowers Cuban independent entrepreneurs, respects intellectual property rights, allows unfettered access to information via the Internet, opens its state monopolies to private competition, and adopts the sound macroeconomic policies that have contributed to the success of Cuba's neighbors in Latin America. This near unanimity of support for the resolution to lift the embargo shows time and again the U.S.'s isolation on the issue. But it also demonstrates the impotence of decisions by the U.N. General Assembly, where despite 188 countries agreeing that the embargo should go, 
the non-binding result of this broad consensus means very little in shifting the relationship between Washington and Havana. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pees in New York. Now let's go back in time to today in history in 1998. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which accused prominent South African leaders from across the political spectrum of human rights violations, was published. Former SAFM anchor Tim Mudise takes us back to 1998. At one stage earlier today, it looked as if the release of the much-heralded Truth and Reconciliation report would be derailed by a legal challenge from the ANC. But that threat ended when a judge threw out the case and the report was presented on schedule to President Mandela. The presentation was the culmination of a long and emotionally draining process which laid bare the horrors of the apartheid era. The TRC chairman, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, had this message for the people of South Africa. Accept this report as a way, as an indispensable way to healing. Let the waters of healing flow from Pretoria today as they flowed from the altar in Ezekiel's vision flow from here to cleanse our land, to cleanse its people, and to bring unity and reconciliation. That's Archbishop Desmond Tutu handed over the five gold-bound volumes which make up the report to President Nelson Mandela. I accept the report as it is, with all its imperfections, as an aid that the TRC has given to us to help reconcile and build our nation. The late former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, speaking there on this day in 1998 after receiving the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And that was Today in History in 1998. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has opened Parliament with a warning that locals who front for foreign firms are trying to dodge indigenization law face decisive action. Mugabe says it is depressing that some people have turned themselves into mere fronts of foreign investors. In 2007, Zimbabwe enacted a so-called indigenization law forcing foreign-owned firms to hand over at least 51% of shareholding to local partners. Mugabe says the law, which followed controversial land seizures launched in 2000, was meant to reverse imbalances which resulted from colonial rule. Ahmed concerns that Zimbabwe's economy could be heading for a freefall. Mugabe hinted that nationals who lost their income during the hyperinflation era could be refunded. Mugabe says a commission to look into the transactions will be established soon. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. 
At a time when the country is struggling economically with the ruling party on the verge of splitting, no news apart from the financial benefit could have been sweet, especially from the country's president. As Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe hinted that nationals who lost their income due to inflation might get refunds. When the country was plunged into the worst economical challenge, jobs were lost, schools and hospitals closed, and banks failed to contain the hyperinflation. Namibia's ballooning import bill, fueled by the rampant import of unproductive luxury items like motor vehicles, threatens a fragile economic recovery and may hamper the country's ability to import necessities such as food. The governor of the Bank of Namibia, Impumbu Shimi, says that the Monetary Policy Committee decided to leave the repo rate unchanged at 6%, although the central bank will keep a close eye on credit growth, which is on an upward trend now reaching 15.3%. He he explained that despite good credit, which helps businesses expand and create more employment, too much of the credit held in Namibia is a burden on households, particularly the forms of overdrafts, installment and credit personal loans. Vietnam-based telecoms operator Vietel plans to invest $1 billion in a new third-generation 3G mobile phone network in Tanzania. The mobile telecoms sector in East Africa's biggest economy has grown rapidly over the past decade, driven by demand for 3G mobile services. There are about 29 million mobile subscribers, representing market penetration of 64%. State-owned Vietel, which is run by Vietnam's Ministry of Defense, won its Peruvian mobile license in 2012. Brent oil prices are holding steady above $86 a barrel. This as investors await guidance from the Federal Reserve on U.S. monetary policy later in the day. And after industry data on U.S. inventories, it came in more or less as expected. Investors are also awaiting data on closely watched stockpiles from the U.S. government's Energy Information Administration due today. The Federal Open Market Committee wins up or rather winds up a two-day policy meeting and is widely expected to announce it will end its two-year bond-buying stimulus program known as Quantitative Easing 3 as the U.S. economy continues to recover. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa. Remember, it's your gateway to the African continent. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.91 South African Rand, 897 Botswana Pula, 632 in Zambia, 062 to the British Pound, 079 to the Euro, 1,230 dollars. That's gold to platinum, 1,263 dollars an ounce. Brand crude, 86 dollars, 25 cents. A barrel. That's our economic update. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next is with Msubudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Starting off with football news, Nigeria have been given until Friday to overturn a recent court ruling that voided its football elections or FIFA will ban them until May next year. In a letter sent to the Nigerian Football Federation on Tuesday, FIFA says the directive must be met by midday this coming Friday. FIFA wants the reinstatement of the NFF board that was elected on the 30th of September. If Nigeria failed to compile, they will be expelled from qualification for next year's Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Morocco. The Super Eagles are the reigning champions but are now facing a real prospect of missing the chance to defend their title. Already this year, Nigeria have been banned twice for government interference in the NFF and FIFA warned the country in September that again in October that another incident would result in a lengthy ban. FIFA's action follows last week's ruling by the JAWS High Court announced last month's election by Amaju Pinak as Nigeria Football Federation President. Justice Amros Agola ruled that the elective Congress of the NFF should not be recognized as the Jaws High Court had put in place 11 days earlier in order that the elections could not be held. Meanwhile, former Super Eagles international defender Musa Ayoja says this is not a good image for the country's football. Everything that has to do with Nigeria, if you are in that position where some of the politicians are, everything still goes back to the, to the earlier question you asked, you know. The way everything run in Nigeria is so difficult. And from my point of view, I believe, you know, it's so, it's so, it's so terrible. The way they do things, and they are, I believe they are not even thinking of, you know, the girls that they are going to represent the country because whatever comes out of it, Nigeria, they always take their own decision. When they make decisions, they make it late. You know, and the way things are now, don't be surprised, you know. Whatever FIFA decision might be, but I believe they will still overrule it in the sense that you have politicians in there. They will leave things to the last minute and probably press one or two buttons to still get things back on track. Isa Hayetu, the president of the Confederation of African Football, has expressed shock and dismay at the death of Alonda Pirates and South African national team goalkeeper Senzo Meyua. Meyua was shot and killed in what is reported as a robbery in Fosleras, east of Johannesburg, on Sunday night. In his letter to the South African Football Association, President Dr. Denis Jordan Hayetu says... Words alone could not express the sadness caused by Senzo's death. He further says losing such a talented player and young gentleman is a tragedy for South African and African football. Meyiwa will be laid to rest on Saturday in his hometown of Umlazi in the KwaZulu-Natal province. On to cricket news, South Africa is ranked number one in both tests and one-day internationals. That's according to the latest rankings list that the International Cricket Council released on Tuesday. Janet Whitten reports. South Africa returned to the top in ODIs after winning the series against New Zealand, despite the fact that the last match was rained out. Their next ODI series is against Australia, who are ranked at number two in both formats of the game. In the new ODI list, A.B. de Villiers and Hashim Amla remain the top two batsmen, with Quinton de Kock at number eight. Dale Steyn is at number three on the bowlers list. South Africa lags a bit on the T20 lists, with the team at three, Faf Duplessis and J.P. Dumini at five and eight amongst the batsmen, and no bowlers in the top ten.
And finally, in boxing news, boxing promoter Rodney Berman has hit the jackpot in Monte Carlo in putting together the pieces of one of boxing's most highly anticipated matchups between WBA and RBO middleweight champion Gidney Glokovin and popular British fighter Martin Murray. The fight, which will be staged on the 21st of February next year in conjunction with K2 Promotions at the world's glittering gambling mecca in Monaco, shapes as probably the biggest international boxing contest staged by Berman's Golden Gloves organization since the sensational knockout of Lennox Lewis by Hashim Rahman in in South Africa. Kazakhstan-born Glokovikin has won all of his 31 bouts with 28 via the knockout route and 18 consecutive knockouts to his credit. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, reports from Zambia say Zambian President Michael Sata has died. UN launches probe into violent clashes in South Sudan and Boko Haram victims detail their abuse in a new report. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Salif Keita with a song titled Africa.